Psalm chapter 12. This morning, David is going to help us to pray two prayers. One is so simple, um, any of those kids that just left can pray it and should pray it often. Uh, it's a prayer that I found myself praying a lot this week, um, and I'm praying it even right now. The second prayer, though, you almost need like a concealed carry permit to pray it. This is not for the immature Christian. This is not for the young. Um, this is something that will uh, harm you if you are not careful. Um, and in the same way that we don't let children play with guns loaded with live ammunition, um, I, I want to caution you about the second prayer this morning, that you are not too quick to pray it without praying the first prayer first. The first prayer is just two words. Lord, help. Lord, help. We're going we're gonna to look at that two-word prayer that David prays in this psalm and expound on it, it its meaning, and, and hopefully it will be a help to you this morning. But before we jump into this psalm, it's a short one, um, let's read it together. It's been our custom. We'll put it up on the screen. If you'll read along with me, starting in verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say... With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he belongs. The Lord, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O oh Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Amen. David is surveying the culture that he is in. And one of the things that he notices in the verdict of this survey of the culture is the steep decline in which the culture is found. And David identifies a couple of ways in which he sees that his culture is declining. But I think it's also helpful for us this morning that, that we can use these same three standards to evaluate our culture and to see where our culture is declining as well. And, and I'm going to start by describing these three that we find in this psalm. And let me, let me give you the three ways up front, and then we'll just kind of walk through them. One is flattery. We're going to see that in verse 2, or double speak. The second one we find in verse 4, 
is rebellious tongues. And then the last one we find in verse 8 is tainted values. So flattery, rebellious tongues, and tainted values. Starting in verse 3 there, David is surveying his world and, and looking at the culture in which he lives, and what he finds is that everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and, double, and a double heart, they speak. He, he looks around, and what he sees is a bunch of people saying what other people want to hear. I, I was listening and reading about this text and, and one of the things that I found that one person had said on this uh, subject of flattery that I thought was so um, powerful and so simple is that flattery is like a perfume. You can sniff it, but you should never drink it. And so many times in our culture, we just want to drink in that flattery, but that will kill us. If nobody ever speaks to us the truth, if nobody ever brings correction to us, if everybody just says what they, they think that they, the other people want to hear, then nobody has ever really helped. It, it's like poison to them. And we have to be careful because we are living in a culture full of people who stand in pulpits. And they just tell people what they want to hear. And that's it. They, they tell them about how they can have their best life and how they can just have their dreams and everything can come true until it doesn't, until it all falls apart. And then you know what? This isn't the church for you. You, you need to go on down the street to another church because we're just here to preach the good news, not the bad news, not the fact that we live in a fallen world and that it's filled with sinners. And in that fallen world full of sinners, people are sinning against one another. And there is suffering, and there is hardship, and there is tragedy. There is death, there is disease. Some of which you had absolutely no part in. You can be like Job. You can live that life, that righteous life, and still suffer. Flattery is the first thing we have to be careful of. It's, it's not bad in small doses. Everybody likes to hear you know, good stuff. Again, like perfume, a sniff here and there is not bad. We should be encouraging one another. But drinking it will kill you. The second thing we see as David surveys his culture is these defiant tongues in verse 4. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Now, literally, the text is saying, our lips are, are our own, right? And, and there is a huge push in our country, in our world, for a radical view of freedom of speech. That I can say and do whatever I want. That comes straight from Psalm 12. People claiming that they have ownership 
of their lips. As one person put it as I was reading this week, we want the freedom to believe what we want to believe and then say whatever we want to say our beliefs are. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. They ask this question, who who is master over us in verse 4? The scriptures answer this in the New Testament in two ways when it talks about those who don't know Jesus, those who are lost, those who are living in this culture that is declining. Philippians 3.19 says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Right? This is, this is what Jesus has told us. Out of the abundance of their heart, the mouth speaks. The things that they are saying is pointing and showing us what is inside of their heart. In John 8, 43, 44, it says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. We need to be reminding ourselves this morning of the fact that everything we learn and everything we teach doesn't exist in a vacuum apart from God. Parents, this is especially important for you this morning. The the lessons that you are teaching your child, the things that they are being taught in school, they don't exist apart from God. They are always part of a larger world view. And when we forget that, we get into all kinds of trouble. What we are teaching our kids ultimately will either be an ungodly worldview or a godly worldview. Things in our culture are not amoral. They they don't, again, exist outside of a framework of God. A godly worldview says you did not make your lips. Therefore, you are not completely free to say whatever you want to say just because you feel like saying it. See, the the reality is, when, when, when some of you hear me talking about radical freedom of speech, right, You think, oh my gosh, Dale wants censorship. Well, here's the reality. We're all being censored. The question is, what standard are we going to be censored by? Are are we going to be censored by a godly standard or by ungodly standards? That's the question this morning. And, And a godly worldview says, you know what? I didn't make my lips. I didn't do it. God made my lips. Therefore, ultimately, my lips belong to God. And I want my lips to glorify God in all that they say and do. So that means there are certain things I can't say. There are certain things I shouldn't say. I'm going to censor myself 
because my lips don't belong to me. Now, in an ungodly worldview, it's just the opposite. My lips are mine. I can say and do whatever I want. Therefore, as this ungodly worldview would teach, you are not the ultimate owner of your body. Or excuse me, the godly worldview would teach you are not the ultimate owner of your body. The ungodly worldview says that you are an autonomous being that is in control of yourself. You're completely autonomous. You can do whatever you want to do. This is an ungodly worldview that is being propagated throughout our culture in every realm and sphere you can imagine. This means that an autonomous woman can decide if a child invades her womb and begins to grow that they don't have to submit to a godly worldview that says thou shalt not murder because it's my body. I am autonomous. I exist apart from God. I can do whatever I want to do with my body because it's my body. Or if you're autonomous, then you can decide for yourself what gender you are because like this verse says, you claim that you own your lips, you own your body. A godly worldview says that the world is corrupted by sin. An ungodly worldview of the world says that that the world is corrupted by other factors. Maybe it's corrupted by race or gender or patriarchy or oppression. And that if we just tear down these factors, whatever they are, whatever you fill in the blank, whatever it is this week, then we can fix the world's problems ourselves. Guys, we live in a culture and a time that is teaching an ungodly world view in every aspect, every point of human existence. A radical freedom of speech that I can say and do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. A view of the body that I own it, it's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. I don't have to submit to some other law, some higher law than what I think is right for me. Finally, the last sign of a declining culture is seen in verse 8. Tainted values. Vileness is exalted amongst the children of man. Now, vileness here has two meanings, the word vile. First, it means worthless. Second, it means shameful. And I want you to take just a second, and I want you to think about the songs that are the most popular. Do they exhibit 
godly values? Do they exhibit godly values of honesty and integrity? Do they exhibit godly values of marriage and faithfulness? Do they exhibit godly values about purity and sex? Think about the movies and the TV shows that are most popular right now. Do they exhibit godly values about honesty and integrity? Do they exhibit godly values about marriage and faithfulness? Do they exhibit godly values about purity and sex? Think about the celebrities in our culture. The people that get lifted up and thrust into the spotlight as examples. Do they exhibit godly values of honesty and integrity? Do they exhibit godly values about marriage and faithfulness? Do they exhibit godly values about purity and sex? Vile is things that are worthless and shameful. And when David looked at his culture, that's what he saw. He saw things that were worthless and shameful, and they were being lifted up. They were being exalted. Does that not describe the core of our culture? We have a whole month that celebrates vileness exalted among the children of man. It's been a long time since I've gone shopping. I don't, I don't like to go to stores. I don't know if you know that about me, but I just don't typically shop. But me and Amber and the girls were on vacation, and in God's providence, it rained. So, you know, you shop instead. That's, I guess. At least they convinced me of that. And we stopped at a place on the way home, the Avenues Mall, and I, I was telling my girls, I was like, man, I remember, I remember when I was a kid, this was the place you wanted to go to buy your clothes. Now, I never went, but that was the place I wanted to go. I'll take that back. I did go one time with my best friend. I, I went with him and his family while they bought clothes for them. And I remember thinking one day, one day, I'm, we're going to come back to this place. I'm going to be able to buy some clothes here. And, and I took the girls there. And I'm thinking, you know, town centers have blown up all over Jacksonville I, I, I was like, I, the avenues could be just the dump now, you know. But I was telling my girls, I was like, this used to be the place. And, man, we walked in, and it's still the place. It is still, for a mall, it's amazing. I mean, every store was full. It was, it was crazy. People everywhere. But being there for about an hour made me sick. My, 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 my daughter even told me, she's like, Dad... I, I, you know, I like some of the shirts in that one store, but the people in the store scared me. The, the vileness of our culture is exalted. And you see it in every aspect of our lives. It, it, was, it was palpable the way sin was exalted in that place. We're living in a culture 
in which that which is sinful is now being exalted. This is why our culture chooses the music it chooses. This is why our culture chooses the movies. This is why our culture chooses, chooses the heroes that it does. And I'm not telling you this to be mean. I'm telling you this because you need to hear the truth. Especially those of you who are young here and maybe your parents aren't aware or aren't speaking this truth to you. We are living in a culture in which that which is sinful is being exalted. Listen to this poem that I came across as I was studying for this passage this week. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That, that sounds like a poem that could have been wrote in 2021. And yet, that, that poem was written over 100 years ago by W.B. Yeats. Just after the Second World War and just before the start of the troubled history between Ireland and England, this poem he entitled The Second Coming, it, it reveals a man horror-struck at the state of the world in which he lived. Now, I tell you that because I don't want you to think that this time in which we live in is somehow worse than it has ever been before. Because if that's the case, then we're going to lose hope. I tell you that, and I remind you that, that a hundred years ago, people were saying the same thing to, to remind you that this has been a pattern that has happened throughout history in the history of humanity. Because David also shows us hope in this psalm of how we can stand faithful in a declining culture. And again, I want you to notice three things that David shows us to bring us hope. First, I want you to notice, though, who God promises to help. Because this is important. Because sometimes I think we get this wrong. Okay? The first part of this sermon, which is over now, was the nice part. This part is going to hurt. Just a heads up. In verse 5, he says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise. God is saying that. These are the people that God promises to help. The poor and the needy. God does not promise to rise for the proud or the arrogant. Demanding things be done their way. Oh, so many times I hear Christians praying that way. God, I want it to look like this. God, I want this person 
to be in office. God, I want this to happen. That's, that's not who God promises to stand up for. He promises to stand up for the poor and the needy, the abused, the oppressed. You'll never know God until you are so needy that you have groaned. Words are no longer useful at that point. This morning it's important that we understand our weakness. And this is important because, again, as Christians in America, we... We forget, we, we like to think that we are strong. We like to think that we speak for God as American Christians. But let, 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 this, let this statistic humble you for just a second. Less than 10% of the world's evangelical Christians are Americans. Less than 10% of the world's evangelical Christians are even American. We are the minority. The the Christian movement is less white, meaning European and American, North American, than it has ever been in history. There was a time in which European Christians doubled. There was two to one for everywhere else in the world. That is no longer the case in the world in which we live. The fastest areas of growth for the church is Africa and Latin America. Everything south of the equator right now seems to be exploding. So hear me clearly when I say that as God promises in this passage to come to the aid of the poor and the needy, that increasingly does not mean America from a church perspective. We have to acknowledge our weakness. In America, you're more likely to find proud and arrogant Christians that waste all of their abundance of resources and energy attacking each other. And I'm no prophet, but this could be the very reason that God has allowed our nation to get where it is today. We have to acknowledge our weakness. We have to confess and repent of our pride and our arrogance. Notice how none of that had to do with the culture. All of that first part had to do with me and you. Second, notice that God promises in verse 5, the second part of verse 5 and verse 7, You, O Lord, in verse 7, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. God promises protection from the wicked. God promises that. Again, this is not us protecting ourselves. This is God protecting us. Think about what Jesus said in John 17, 15, when he's praying for us. I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus in this passage, in this verse, is saying, don't 
retreat. Don't leave the world. One, one commentator pointed out when, when discussing this passage that Christians for the last several decades have had two driving principles at work in their lives. The first is political activism. As if by somehow some combination of elected officials and, and laws can usher in the kingdom of God. That this is where our focus needs to be. We just need to be the political activists. We just need to have the right people in place of power and authority. And the second one is this strange isolationism. So on one hand, we're talking about how we need to put the right people in power. But on the other hand, we're retreating from every area of society that we possibly can. We retreat from the world, decreasing our voice and our influence in the world. Never, never in the history of the church has either one of those, and especially both of those, ever produced victory in kingdom work. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus didn't want us to retreat and leave the world. He wanted us to stay in it. This morning, I'm so thankful for those in our church and in churches across this town that have not abandoned thousands of public school kids without any gospel witness. See, Christians got it in their head. What we need to do is we need to leave public education for the sake of our children. We need to protect them. And don't get me wrong. I homeschool my children. There's valid reasons for doing that. But understand what happens when every Christian leaves an organization. You only have the ungodly voices left. Why are you surprised at the state of the world right now? When Christians stop running for office and we retreat from being politicians, why do you think all of the politicians are ungodly? When the people running our economy have nothing to do with God because all of the godly people have retreated to create their own little sub-economies and sub-cultures, that they don't have a voice and an influence in the larger world, why are we surprised at the state of our country? We've retreated. We've not trusted God to protect us. And we've come up with all kind of good, fuzzy reasons to make us feel good about doing this. But the reality is we're to blame for the condition of the culture. Stop pointing your finger at the culture. Stop pointing your finger at the ungodly and start pointing your finger at yourself. Because we're to blame. The ungodly are just doing what the ungodly do. Without a Christian witness, what do you expect? We need musicians and artists that stay in the world rather than retreating to Christian subcategories. We need journalists reporting the news. Lord, do we need journalists reporting the news from a godly perspective. Now more than ever. God promises as long as we stay humble and dependent on him, he will protect us from the ungodly. We don't have to fear them. We just have to remain humble and trust him. The church is at its best when we are in the middle of of culture, but radically different from that culture. This is when we can become salt and light and a true city on a hill. 
We can't do that hiding, guys. If we're honest, we have no one to blame for the American culture the way it is but ourselves. And let me tell you why. Well, when, when you ask people what's wrong with the culture today, you'll get a myriad of unbiblical answers. When you ask Christians what's wrong with the world today, They'll tell you that the reason that the world is the mess that we, is, is in the mess that we are in is because of the Republicans or because of the Democrats. Or they'll tell you that the problem is an unfair economy that actually rewards people that work. I mean, how unfair is that? Or they'll say that it's because of, of systematic oppression by the oppressors. And whoever the oppressors are this month, fill in the blank, that's the problem. That's why the world is messed up the way it's messed up. But listen, listen to how Matthew Henry describes when a culture is declining, commenting on this passage. When there is a general decay of piety and honesty among men. When dishonesty and flattery have corrupted and debauched all conversation. When the enemies of God and religion and religious people are impudent and daring and threaten to run down all that is just and sacred. When the poor and needy are oppressed and abused. When wickedness abounds and goes barefaced under the protection and countenance of those in authority, then the times are very bad. He takes all of that from Psalm 12. Joe Moorcraft said this, and I, I thought it was so good I couldn't, there was no way to paraphrase it and make it any better. The spiritual condition of the church determines the political, social, economic, and international condition of the nation in which that church lives. Let me say that one more time because it's important. The spiritual condition of the church determines the political, social, economic, and international condition of the nation in which that church lives. And it is important that we do not forget that truth. Because if we forget it, we get focused and we get just sidetracked on the wrong things and we start running after people to save us. We start running after politicians to save us. We start running after ideas to save us and we forget to turn to our God to save us. You can change the political parties that are in control of the White House, Congress. You can change the makeup of the Supreme Court, but nothing is going to get any better. Do you hear that this morning? Can you let that sink into your head this morning, Christian? Why? Because only Psalm 12 works in a declining culture. And what does Psalm 12 say we need? It says we need a church that is weak and needy and trusting that God will protect them while they engage with the culture for the sake of the gospel. Now, in the beginning of this sermon, I said that there were two prayers in this passage. The first one is in verse 1. It's two words. Help, Lord. Help, Lord. 
And I said, anybody can pray that one, and anybody can, and everybody should. But this second prayer, be careful. You need to pray it because it's in the Word. It wouldn't be in the Word if we didn't need to pray it. But I want to warn you, and I want to caution you, if you are immature, if you are not heeding my warnings to examining yourself first and, and taking the, the brunt of the blame on yourself for the way the world is, instead of pointing your fingers out to everybody else, then we, like David, need to pray the second prayer we find in this passage. Verse 3, May the Lord cut off the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. This is one of those fun word, imprecatory prayers that we find in the Psalms, where we're asking God to do harm. Be careful with it. We should pray it. But man, you need to be careful with it because it'll blow up in your face. You might find that it's your flattering lips that get cut off or your tongue. See, God answers this prayer to those who are weak and groaning under oppression, not those who are proud and arrogant and think they know how it all should look. This church is a church that trusts that God will root out and remove the sin from places of power and influence. It doesn't think that they have to be the one to do it. This morning, if you want the world to change, if you want our culture to change, start by asking God to search your heart this morning. Ask him to show you where you need to repent and ask him to grant repentance. Ask him to show you where you have allowed ungodly worldviews to control you, to influence you. Where you have taught inadvertently maybe, and maybe sometimes advertently, your children these ungodly worldviews. Ask him where you are being prideful and arrogant. And then ask the Holy Spirit to use the words of the Lord to purify you like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times, as he says in this passage about the word of the Lord. Once we see God changing the church, Then we'll see God cutting off the lips of the enemy. This morning, these messages about how bad our culture is, when you hear them preach so many times, it's just about pointing fingers outwardly. Guys, we, we need to take responsibility for where we are personally individually but also corporately as a body and we need to cry out to god in a weakened humble state and pray that first prayer help god help
Lord, help. And as we do that, and as we allow him to refine us through his word, then pray that second prayer. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. So that we can see our culture, our country, our world change for the sake of the gospel. We do it not by being strong and proud and arrogant, by being weak and dependent on him to protect us and trust him. While we go and engage the culture that we live in, we don't run and hide. We trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for hard words. Thank you for David helping us to not only learn about his culture, but to discern where our culture stands. But Father, thank you most of all for the fact that your word says you will rise for those who are weak and those who are oppressed. And God, in many ways, our American church is facing more and more oppression. God, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be faithful with this gospel message, with sharing a godly worldview and every sphere of influence that you give each and every one of us in this room. Lord, help us to run from the two ways in which we try to fix things, whether it's political activism or isolationism. And God, instead, we would be salt and light. That we would be in the world, but not of the world. And that you would protect us, that you would deliver us from the evil one. The same way you delivered your son. Father, give us the strength that we will need in the days to come to be faithful witnesses of the gospel for you. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name.